Hello and welcome to Punch a Hole in the Wind, a look at some of the great thoroughbred racehorses who have graced our racetracks all around the world over the last century or so. I'm Ollie Hine and it's great of you to join me on this exciting trip down memory lane. My aim is to both remind you of some of your heroes from years gone by, but also to introduce you to some others whom you may not be so familiar with. In this episode, we're going to France in the 1930s and a mysterious horse who passed so quickly into and out of the racing scene that he is unknown or forgotten by the majority of racing aficionados. Yet there are some who swear he could have been the best ever. And his name was Faris. It is a truth universally acknowledged that European horses, on average, run fewer races than their US and Australian counterparts. Even so, having only three races in a career seems absurd. And to have such a barely exposed horse in this list might seem, on the face of it, ludicrous. But it's not as simple as that. Dig deeper, and you realise that Farris absolutely deserves his place amongst the greats. And the first of those reasons is the towering figure of Marcel Boussac. Textile magnate Boussac was small, dapper, wealthy, and immensely astute. His revolutionary approach to breeding utterly dominated first the French and then the European racing scene for decades, but went far wider. His canny ability to push the limits of inbreeding to maintain brilliance without compromising health was soon practised elsewhere. He changed the design of what a standard stud farm should look like, with his trailblazing Arras de freinet le Buffard stud in Normandy as a template. The Americans soon copied him. He was leading owner in France 19 times, leading breeder 17 times, won a staggering 36 French classics and six Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe. Soon enough, his famous orange and grey silks also became the Jolly Roger to the British racing scene, as he launched successful raids and plundered all the top races there too. After winning the Epsom Derby in 1950 with Galcador, he was overheard to say casually in the winner's enclosure, I have six better than him back in France. And in all honesty, he wasn't joking. In fact, he didn't joke at all. And you'll be hard-pressed to find a photo of him smiling. In short, this was a pioneer who was peerless in his knowledge of horses. So when he said later in life that Farris was unquestionably the best racehorse he'd ever seen, let alone bred, you did well to listen. By Pharos, and out of Boussac's moderate mare Carissima, very few thoroughbreds are genuinely black, but the stunning Faris was one of them. As black as a crow, the Parisian Turfiste wrote. He grew to have an imposing presence, with quite a long back and powerful headquarters, but being quite scopy, he took a while to grow into his frame, so did not run at two. Placed into training with one of Boussac's retained trainers, the Paris-based Englishman Albert Swan, Farris finally saw the racecourse in May 1939, in the 12-furlong Prix Noailles at Longchamp, where, under Charlie Elliott, he cruised to a three-length victory. He looked very promising. Just three weeks later, he was thrown in at the deep end of the Prix du Jockey Club, the French derby. Respected French racing journalist Michel Boucher would see an amazing 80 French derbies in person, and he was unequivocal that Farris's victory was the best that he had ever seen. As he said later, 
blocked in at the back of the field, the jockey pulled the horse wide and, showing an incredible turn of foot, passed the whole field to win comfortably by two and a half lengths from Galerian. The crowd was genuinely thrilled to see a burgeoning superstar. A mere fortnight after that, and the biggest European prize of all at the time, the Grand Prix de Paris, beckoned. Longchamp was properly attended in those days. A record 59,797 spectators turned up, amongst them the new French president Albert Lebrun and the exiled Duke and Duchess of Windsor. Perhaps they were all there for the socialising, but they also had the good fortune to witness greatness. Just a year earlier, Niarco's victory in that same race had almost caused an international incident. And more drama would follow this year, fortunately this time within the confines of the race, as the 19 horses in the high-quality international field rounded the final turn of the 15-furlong race, the more tired ones blocked Farris, who was still near the back, and he stumbled, pretty much falling to his knees. he just recovered his stride. Charlie Elliott then found a gap on the inside, and despite the slow ground and the long race, Farris unleashed a quite breathtaking turn of foot to storm past the other horses. Watching it now is proper jaw-dropping stuff. Despite being in the pack and nearly at a standstill with two furlongs to go, photographic and video evidence shows that his winning margin was fully six lengths, and not the arbitrary two and a half lengths that the judges asserted. The testimonials flooded in. Like the winged horse of the Arab legend, wrote one admiring English journalist. French daily Le Figaro, meanwhile, thought nothing of publishing a spontaneously written verse by leading poet Léon-Paul Fargue, also in the audience and dumbfounded and inspired by what he had seen. Elsewhere in the same edition, their racing correspondent wrote, At last, now, when older generations tell us tales of gladiateur and the like, we will contend that we saw the greatest horse of them all. His name was Farris. He further waxed lyrical that what he had seen was an education. The winner was no longer just the best by far of his generation. He was changing the goalposts. Jockey Charlie Elliott, a winner of 14 classics in the UK and France, declared that there was simply no competition amongst which was the best horse that he had ridden. More prosaically, who had ridden the runner-up and had himself ridden champion Brantome just a few years earlier, was almost baffled afterwards. When I heard a horse coming up behind me, I immediately looked round, but he'd already gone past. In a championship race, Farris had put up a champion's performance, displaying a turn of foot that to this day has seldom been replicated, especially in a 15-furlong race. There was frantic excitement as he was then sent over to England for the St. Ledger in September, where he was due to square up to the English hero Blue Peter. This equally handsome horse, an intelligent white-blazed chestnut, had taken all before him in that fateful English summer, including the first two legs of the Triple Crown, as well as the Eclipse Stakes against his elders. Indeed, the two horses were cousins of a kind, as Blue Peter's grandsire Fairway was a full brother to Farris's father, Pharos. The press on both sides of the channel went into giddy overdrive, dubbing it the duel on town moor and whipping up something of a frenzy. Both sides exuded confidence, with more favouring Farris because he potentially had more improvement in him, 
having only graced the racetrack in anger three times. But if Niarco's victory the year before had smelled war on the horizon, Farris's year saw it put off no longer. Just as Farris was being settled into the yard of Steve Donoghue, former champion jockey and now trying it as a trainer, Germany invaded Poland. Within two days, the UK declared war. It being only 72 hours before the St. Ledger, there was no option but to cancel the final classic. Most fully understood. But not everyone. Possibly apocryphal, but yet how we desperately hope that it isn't, the UK ambassador to France was allegedly heard to say, It is inconceivable that in a country of sport lovers like ours, war should have been declared before the St. Ledger, which was to be the race of the century and for which I especially planned my holidays. But there was to be no duel. Farris's other target, the Ark, was likewise abandoned soon after. Meanwhile, Boussac had no choice but to hurry his supreme black racer back onto the ship to Normandy and retire him. Three races, three increasingly stunning victories, a sky-high reputation and frustration as to what might have been. Farris's story doesn't end there. In his first year at Stud, the Nazi invaders found him and sent him to Germany to pair up with various German mares. Fortunately, he was returned unharmed in 1945. But Boussac, understandably, refused to recognise any of his sire's supposed offspring, most notably the filly Asterbluter, who captured the German Derby, 1,000 guineas and Oaks in 1946. Perhaps Farris's German sojourn was a blessing. Boussac's dual arc-winning mare, Corrida, was not taken from his Normandy stud in 1940, but later disappeared soon after D-Day, almost certainly ending up as meat for hungry soldiers. Farris's immediate success on his return to stud, with the first 13 foals producing 10 winners, including a Prix du Jockey Club and arc winner, showed yet again that likely his best breeding years were also stolen, in the same way as his racing years had been. But some experts, like Michel Boucher, felt that they had seen enough in his final race. In the last 200 metres, he would have beaten Seabird, no matter what, said Boucher. And if the grainy evidence is anything to go by, it's not a crazy assertion. Next time, we'll go to a different part of the world and explore the exploits of another great horse from another era who could punch a hole in the wind. But until then, this is Ollie Hine signing off and saying thank you for listening.